What is your deepest fear? I'm not going to ask you to share it with the person next to you. You'd be pleased to know. But I do want you to think about it. What is it that worries you the most? What is it that you dread the most? And does that fear cause you to act in a way that displeases God? Does that fear lead you to do things that you know he doesn't want you to do? Does that fear stop you from doing things that you know he does want you to do? What part does fear play in preventing you from growing more like Jesus? Well, in our passage today, the people of God were in fear, great fear. A few hundred years beforehand, the nation of Israel had been split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And the king of Judah at the time was King Ahaz. He was, in chapter 7, verse 1, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah. Jotham and Uzziah were generally good kings, but Ahaz wasn't. Uh, if you keep your little bookmark in Isaiah 6, let me just read to you, or you can come with me if you want to, uh, 2 Kings chapter 16. I'll just tell you the kind of person uh, we've got here. 2 Kings chapter 16, I'll just read verses 2 and 3. It's page 385. Ahaz was, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Right? He's not a flattering assessment of his reign by the biblical writer. Now this was Ahaz. And while Ahaz was the king of Judah, a major threat emerged to Judah. In the second half of verse 1 of Isaiah 7, we read that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage a war against it. They, they formed an alliance against Judah. They wanted to attack the capital, Jerusalem. And so verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were scared. How would you feel if you knew your country was about to be attacked by an alliance of enemy forces who would carry off everything that you have and probably kill you and your family or take you away as slaves? That was the situation of God's people in Judah. They were scared and they were desperate. But God is in control. And in his timing, the time had not come for this to happen to Judah. The exile wouldn't happen for another 150 years. And so God, in verse 3, sends Isaiah and his son, Shir Jashub, 
to go and meet Ahaz. Shir Jashub means a remnant shall return, because back in chapter 1, God had decreed destruction on Judah for all her sins. The exile was going to happen. But he also promised a few survivors, a remnant, and so Isaiah's son was a living sign that this would happen. Ahaz was probably inspecting the water supply in the preparation for the siege, which is why in verse 3, um, God tells Isaiah to go and meet him with his son at the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. And here's the message he gives in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Jerusalem and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So they call it a smoldering firebrand. If a piece of wood is smoldering, it's red from the fire, but it's not properly burning. So when you take it out of the fire, it's going to quickly die out, isn't it? And God says, the king of Syria, the king of Egypt, they are smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're going to die out. They say they're going to come and defeat Judah, but God says, verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. God has decided it's not going to happen. And he is perfectly capable of making sure that it won't happen. For, verse 8, the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. The highest thing in Syria is the capital, Damascus. And the highest thing in Damascus is King Rezin and, and that's all. It's only Rezin. Now, people are scared by him, but God's not impressed at all. Not only that, God has also decreed the destruction of the other ally, Israel. Verse 8 continues, Within 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, the northern kingdom, will be broken to pieces so it will no longer be a people. God was going to destroy him. And he's perfectly capable of making that happen. Verse 9, The head of Samaria, if Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. The highest thing in Israel is the capital, Samaria. The highest thing in Samaria is the king, Pekah, son of Remaliah. That's all. Only Pekah. People are scared by Pekah, but God's not impressed at all. But then God warns Ahaz and Judah, for the word you in the second half of verse 9 is in the plural. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Told you what's happened to Israel, what's going to happen to Israel, as a result of their sins, within 65 years they're going to be destroyed. You, all of you, need to be firm in your faith. Don't fear. Don't act from fear. You need to put your trust in me and my word because if you don't, then you're in danger of failing as well. And then God makes a very gracious and may I say unusual offer to Ahaz. He offers him a sign. Verse 10 to 11. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead, so figuratively it's as low down as possible, or as high as the heavens, as high as possible. In other words, ask for anything. God actually wanted to give a sign to Ahaz because he really, really wants him to be sure of the promise that he's making. 
God wanted to give a sign to Ahaz because it's easy to fear when you see the problem in front of you. And God wanted to give him something to help him not to fear, but to trust him. And how did Ahaz respond? Verse 12. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now at first you might think this is a commendable response. It's indeed right not to put the Lord to the test, and you certainly can't demand for God to give you signs. And yes, we don't need signs to hear and obey God's word, but, but here God in his word, through the prophet, is telling you to ask for a sign. That's different, isn't it? And yes, Ahaz's response sounds quite spiritual, but remember who's making it. If it came from a godly king who trusted in God or wouldn't put him to the test, that'd be quite different than coming from a person like Ahaz, isn't it? This is not evidence of faith. We know that he has none. It's an attitude of, I can't be bothered with this Yahweh and his prophet, but I know enough about religion from my father and grandfather to answer politely in a pious-sounding way so as not to offend the many people in my country who still believe. Isn't it? And so Isaiah responds, verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, some people have argued that the word virgin there could mean young woman, but whenever the Hebrew word is used, it's always about a virgin. And when this passage was translated into Greek many years before Jesus was born, the translators used the Greek word, which indisputably means virgin. The virgin shall conceive. So what's the prophecy here? A virgin shall conceive a child. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will eat curds and wild honey, the food of poor people. Before he comes of age, the land of Syria and the land of Israel, Judah's two enemies, will be desolated. Now that's good news, isn't it? Good news for Ahaz. But here's the bad news for Ahaz. God is still going to judge you and your people, but from an unexpected source, not from these two kings. Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That is, that's going to be so bad, worse than anything that's happened since the split. The king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. The armies will swarm in. Not there the Lord will shave with a razor that is high beyond the river with the king of Assyria. The head and the hair of the feet it will sweep away the beard also. Everything's taken off in its path. And that day a young man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep 
And because of the abundance of milk they give, we will eat curds for everyone that's left in the land. We'll eat curds and honey. Small amount. It's considered abundance. They're all in poverty. In that day, every place which used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. As for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. Judah will be devastated by Assyria. The nation will be reduced to poverty. The rich and thriving agricultural industry in the country will be destroyed. Farms and vineyards overgrown. What was carefully cultivated and domesticated turned wild. The Lord will bring judgment on Judah. Not through the ones they feared, but through someone else. He would use Assyria. The very nation that Ahaz thought was an ally... And in fact, the one he would look to instead of God to provide his salvation. More about this in a moment. When we come to chapter 8, we see both these promises reiterated. The good news side and the bad news side. The good news first. In verse 1, God gets Isaiah to make a big tablet and write on it, Belonging to Maher Shalal Hajbaz. Now, when he says a large tablet, he's not talking about an iPad, right? It could be paraphrased as a, a large placard or, or a big sign. Right? Maher Shalal Hajbaz <coughs> means spoil, speed, haste, booty. Spoil, as in the spoils of war, kind of spoil. Speed, very fast. Haste. Booty, like the spoils of war again, right? Haste, uh, and space and speed. So. so he gets this big sign, and he gets witnesses, so there's no doubt that he's saying this before the time. So when the prophecy is fulfilled, everyone, people look at his son, and they'll be reminded that God has predicted the future before it happened. And then in verse 3, he goes to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said to him, the Lord said to him, Call his name Maher Shalal Hajbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. See, the spoil comes quickly, goes quickly. Like a bounty makes haste, it's taken away quickly. God is going to use the Assyrians to destroy Judah's two enemies. Now I want you to compare this prophecy carefully with the prophecy of Emmanuel in chapter 7. Compare. Look how it's introduced. Chapter 7 verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Chapter 8 verse 1, the introduction. Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Both chapters, there's a sign, isn't there? There's a similarity. And yet there's a difference. In chapter 7, 14, the sign is directly from God. In chapter 8, verse 1, God commands Isaiah to make the sign. And then there's the phrase, conceive and bear a son. Again, both, both times it's there. Chapter 7, 14 continues, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And chapter 8, verse 3, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. See the structure's the same? It's as if chapter 8 is like a fulfillment of chapter 7, isn't it? 
Uh, the prophecies are meant to be read together, and yet there are differences. In chapter 7, verse 14, it is a virgin who conceives. And in chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah is careful to tell us that he went to the prophetess and she conceived. There's a great similarity, and yet there is a difference. And the next thing in both sections, of course, is the name again structurally the same. 7, 14, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin shall call his name Emmanuel. And chapter 8, verse 3, the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hazvaz. Again, chapter 8 is meant to reflect. Chapter 7, it's a, it's a fulfillment, as we, if you like, as chapter 7. And look at the result. In chapter 7, before the boy is old enough to know good from evil, in verse 15 or 16, the land of Israel and the land of Syria will be devastated. In chapter 8, verse 4, before the boy knows how to call his parents, the wealth of Damascus, that is the capital of Syria, the spoil of Samaria, the capital of Israel, will be carried away. Is the promise result the same thing? Yes, it is, isn't it? And that promise was fulfilled very quickly in the lifetime of Isaiah. So, Maher Shalal Hajbal, well, I'm sure he got teased at school. Right? He was a sign that God was with his people. He was, in a sense, saying by his very existence, Emmanuel, God is with us. And indeed, the two kings were defeated. And so in one sense, Maher Shalal Hajbaz was the Emmanuel sign. But he is not fully Emmanuel, is he? He doesn't completely fulfill the promise. The promise is actually bigger than him. Something because something much bigger than him is promised. There must be a greater fulfillment with God himself providing the sign, not Isaiah writing it on tablet. There must be a greater fulfillment with, with an actual virgin conceiving, not just the wife of a prophet. There will be a greater fulfillment where Emmanuel is more than just a sign, but actually God being with his people. And if that is the case, and if the defeat of the two enemies of Judah was already fulfilled by the lesser fulfillment in Maher Shalal Hajbaz, then you can expect an even greater victory when the ultimate Emmanuel, of which Maher Shalal Hajbaz was a shadow, actually comes. For if Maher Shalal Hajbaz is just a shadow of the real Emmanuel, then the enemies of Judah are also a shadow of the real enemies of God's people. And when the real Emmanuel really comes, you can expect that the real enemies of God's people, the things that really threaten them, the evils that will bring them eternal doom, will be defeated. And they will be saved not just from two kings that threaten them in history and stop them from enjoying God's blessings in the land, but from the greater power that threatens to stop them from enjoying God's eternal blessings in the new creation. Listen now to the words of the angel recorded by Matthew in our New Testament reading. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, a virgin, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So, brothers and sisters, Matthew tells us the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy comes in Jesus. He's the true Emmanuel, God really with us. Not just in sign, but in reality. God himself, born of the real virgin, to be one of us, and to save us from not just two kings, but our sins, by dying on the cross in our place. He is God with us, so that we can ever be with him. Ahaz received the small sign of Emmanuel. Maher shalal hashbaz. And if he had read the sign and had believed the sign, then he would have known that he didn't need to fear the two kings. When he saw Isaiah's son, and when he saw the two kings defeated, well, he ought to have known that God had really spoken, and he ought to have humbled himself and got down on his knees and begged God for mercy, because what the Emmanuel sign, Mahir Shalel Hazbaz, was saying to him was that what he really needed to fear was the judgment that was God was going to bring upon him from the Assyrians by his sin. And this is the judgment that Isaiah warns about in the next few verses. First he had a message about Israel in chapter 8 verse 6. Because these people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, that have rejected God's rule, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, put all their hopes on those two kings that were threatening Judah. Therefore, verse 7, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. God was going to send Assyria to destroy them like a river that overflows. And you could almost hear the people of Judah cheering at this point. But the problem is, it's not just Israel that's affected. It goes on, verse 8, And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outstretched wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Judah. Israel's destroyed, but Judah will be affected as well, right up to the neck. And even Emmanuel... Maher Shalal Hashbaz, the one who signifies that God is with his people, the one whose name was a prophecy that God would rescue his people from those two kings, the one who is a sign of God's salvation, even his land is destroyed and devastated. But, not completely, up to the neck only. So once again, when Ahaz saw the fulfillment of the first prophecy, and when he saw the sign of Maher Shalal Hajbaz, when he saw Emmanuel, he ought to have repented. But he didn't. Let me tell you what did happen. Ahaz didn't listen to Isaiah. Instead of trusting God's word, and because he feared the two kings, he called the king of Assyria for help. And the Assyrians came. The Assyrians ruined the Syrians. They took the people into exile, killed Rezin. And later they went against Israel, destroyed Samaria, sent the people of Israel into exile. And then they turned and attacked Judah. 
They devastated the entire countryside of Judah until all that was left was Jerusalem. The land of Maher Shalal Hashbaz was ruined. And they had already laid siege on Jerusalem. The water was up to Judah's neck, so to speak, when God miraculously rescued his people. And you could read about that in 2 Kings or, or later on in Isaiah. God's word through the prophet, it came to pass. God's warning to Ahaz, it was real, if only he had listened. If only the people of Judah had feared God instead of fearing Israel and Syria. If only Ahaz had seen the Emmanuel sign and repented. For God's plans never fail, verse 9 and 10. No matter what alliances are made, no matter what armaments they procure, what really counts is Emmanuel, God with us. So what's the lesson for us from this passage? How does this apply to us? Well, the lesson for us is the same lesson as the lesson for Isaiah, and it is this. Do not be like the people of Judah. They feared the wrong thing. Verse 11. The Lord spoke to me thus, and with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The people of Judah lived in fear of Pekah and Rezin, but they didn't fear God. God could save them from Pekah and Rezin, and he would. He could punish them using the Assyrians, and he would. Who should they really be afraid of? Not the armies of Israel and Syria. They should be afraid of God. The Lord of hosts, that is, the God of armies. 8 verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, Him you should regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Be afraid of Him. Fear Him. Treat Him. Honor Him as holy. He is holy, 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 Lord of hosts. Treat Him in a way that is consistent with the fact that He is God and we are His creatures. Take cognizance of the fact that He brings judgment and His judgments are immense. Don't play the fool with Him. He's not to be trifled with. Do you think two enemy kings are scary? We quote the New Testament book of Hebrews, it is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. The people of Israel and the people of Judah failed to fear God. They didn't take his wrath into account. And so God himself, the one whom they didn't think was important, was the cause of their downfall. Verse 14. He will become... A sanctuary, now that's a good thing. Sanctuary is a safe place for some. And to others, verse 14 continues, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
God himself is like a stone that people fall over. God himself is like a trap that they grip. Because they just don't take him seriously enough. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish authorities acted in fear. They feared the Romans. They feared the Romans would come and take away their privileges if Jesus caused trouble. They feared the people. It's why they're always cautious with their answers with Jesus. They feared, but they didn't fear God. If they did, they would have submitted to Jesus, not crucified him. And just like their predecessors in Israel, in Isaiah's day, they faced God's wrath. And God in the person of Jesus became a sanctuary, a place of safety to some, and a rock of stumbling to many others, the cause of judgment. God came and they killed him. And like their ancestors did in the time of Isaiah, the people of Judah faced his wrath. Their city was destroyed and their people were scattered. Maybe you are someone here today who knows about Jesus, but you have not yet put your trust in him. You will not openly say that he is your Lord. Because why? Because of fear. Then listen to what God says. Do not call conspiracy all these people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy let him be your fear let him be your dread. Do not be like Ahaz who feared the wrong thing. Be more afraid of God. Get on your knees and cry to him for mercy. And he will save you from your sins. He will make you his own and you don't need to fear anymore. But what about believers here? What about those of us who call Jesus our Lord, who rely on him to save us? Sad to say there are still so many things we do or fail to do because we fear other people. It's true, isn't it? We fear what people will say about us. We fear what people will think about us. We fear what people will do to us. We fear our bosses. We fear our clients. We fear our colleagues. We fear our government. We fear our media. We fear the people. And in the end, God is the one that we are ultimately accountable to. God is the one who holds us in his hands. So let me say, fearing man is no excuse for doing things that God would not be pleased with. And fearing man is no excuse for failing to do the things that God has commanded us to do. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Jesus says the same thing in this way. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So friends, take this as a warning. Ahaz feared the two kings more than he feared God. Ahaz trusted Assyria more than he trusted God and that was a disaster. Now think with me. 
what it would have been. God graciously used the Assyrians to save Ahaz, didn't he? And if Ahab was looking at the situation and he read the circumstances, then Ahaz would have thought, hey, that was really good that I called the Assyrians, isn't it? Right? Because they got rid of the Syrians and the Israelites. He would have congratulated himself for making a smart move there. But actually he was wrong. Instead of reading the circumstances, he should have read God's sign. Had he read the warning through the words of the prophet, had he seen the sign preserved in the name of Isaiah's son, when the two kings went down, he ought to have repented, not rejoiced. And the very thing that he trusted instead of God, Assyria, became the instrument of God's discipline over his people. And so the second thing we learn here is not only to fear God, but to trust him to keep his promises. If God has promised to forgive you, if you come to him through Jesus, do you need to do extra religious works just to be on the safe side to make sure you're saved? No. If God has said that you are raised with Christ far above all rule and authority, do you have to protect yourself from spiritual attack by going to a medium or a boma? No. If God has promised to look after you, do you really have to lie and cheat and bribe to make sure you have all that you materially need? No. And if you do, God will have to discipline you. And it will be these very things that will come back to bite you in the end. Trust the word of God. Rely on his promises. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. For in the same way as Maher Shalal Hashbaz in the Old Testament was the Emmanuel sign to Ahaz, Jesus is the Emmanuel to us. More than the sign, he's the reality. He is God with us. Mahel, Shalal Hashbaz, spoil, speed, haste, booty showed that God was with his people and he was going to save them from the enemies they feared. Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, shows that God is with his people and he's going to save us from the enemy that we truly need to fear, sin. And after the two kings were destroyed, Whenever the people of Judah saw Mahel Shalel Hashbaz, they've been reminded of the prophecy fulfilled, known God's word is true, and they should have humbled themselves and begged God for mercy because they knew the next thing on God's agenda was the judgment upon Judah for refusing to trust him. And when we see Jesus, Emmanuel, who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies, we know God's word is true. 
And we know we ought to humbly ourselves get down on our knees and beg God for mercy. But the next thing on God's agenda is to bring his judgment on those who refuse to see the sign, listen to his word, and trust him. Friends, we do not need to fear what other people fear. The only thing we have to fear is God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that so often in our own minds we try to domesticate you and we forget to fear you. We know you love us. We know you gave your son to die for us. We know that we are accepted by you through him. But sometimes we, we take you for granted. And please forgive us for that, Lord. Please help us to remember that in everything we do we are accountable to you. That you are holy, holy, holy. And that we will stand before you on that last day. Help us to fear you more than we fear other people or other things. Help us to fear you more than than anything else and may that fear drive us to bow before you come to you through your son know your grace and your mercy and therefore not only fear you but love you and love you more than anything else as well so heavenly father please would you by your Spirit, make yourself bigger and bigger in our eyes so that we can't make you small and push you into the corner, but our fear and love of you to dominate our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.